Organic is to produce food in nature's ways with no external inputs. In true cost, it is the cheapest food. It is the cheapest way you should produce food. Welcome back to Reconditioned with me, Lauren Vaknin. So, oh my gosh, I'm just absolutely blown away by the episode I've just recorded with Dr. Vandana Shiva. She's honestly the most extraordinary being. So there, there was two facets to it. Firstly, just the depths of the work she has done in environmental activism when it comes to campaigning for food sovereignty and bringing truths to light about big and corrupt corporations like Monsanto, who she's become their most well-known opponent. But then on the other hand, she's just this connected being who's concerned with the interconnectedness of us as beings of us with the planet. And as a quantum physicist, she has such a deep understanding on a metaphysical level about what that really means, that there is no separation. Anyone who understands even the tiniest bit about quantum mechanics, and I am by no means an expert, but I can understand what we're learning about energy and what has always been true to me intuitively about energy, we understand that there is no separation. We've built a so-called civilized society or civilization around the very lie that we are all separate and we operate by thinking egoically. So my family, your family, my money, your money, my food, your food. But the work of people like Dr. Joe Dispenza is showing us as light as day what ancient civilizations and indigenous peoples who are connected to the land and to source have always understood. There is no separation. We're all connected at a deep metaphysical level. I'm not separate from you and you are not separate from him and he is not separate from the mushrooms growing on that tree and those mushrooms and that tree are not separate from each other. We're all one. And Dr. Shiva understands this at a much deeper level and articulates it so beautifully in this episode. But for those who are interested in the more practical side of things and me liking to have the masculine feminine balance, I enjoyed both parts of this. The amazing thing about this episode is that Vandana Shiva takes us back through the background of what happens and what has happened happened in these corporations, where the chemicals that are being sprayed on our food and used to grow our food and are destroying our health have come from, who owns them and why. The entire background of the link between big chem, big pharma, big tech, from a real inside perspective, all the things I'm called out for is misinformation. She takes us through all of it exactly and explains in black and white how and why it happens and what that means for our health and our soil and the health of our planet and what we can do most importantly. You know, she's been hired by the UN, every organization you can think of when it comes to environmental challenges. She really is the authority on this subject of who's connected to who and why and what and she would be the first person I listen to when it comes to this subject. So it was really great to just hear it from the horse's mouth and just to see her passion as she spoke about it. No conspiracy, no bullshit, just the pure facts light as day. So you can hear where your food is coming from, what is on it, why chemicals are being used to grow it, what it's doing to you and what it's doing to the planet. So I'm not going to blabber on any more about this because obviously she tells it much more articulately and I'm excited for you to hear about it in her words from the horse's mouth. So I really hope you will enjoy this episode. Make sure to go to the show notes to check out how you can see more about Dr. Shiva, watch the film about her activism, read her book, the oneness versus the 1%, really life-changing book. Things you will read in that book will 
just be mind blowing and you'll be like, oh, I can't believe I didn't know this information. So make sure to do that and make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple, wherever you're listening. And on Spotify, you can give it a five stars if you really like it and rate the podcast, which really helps us to get seen by more people so that we can continue sharing this message. So thank you very much for listening and for being here. Dr. Vandana Shiva is a scholar, food sovereignty advocate and world-renowned environmental activist, the daughter of a Himalayan forest conservator who became the world's most powerful opponent of Monsanto, known by many as the Gandhi of grain for her tireless work to regain control of the seeds we rely on out of the hands of big corporations and back into the hands of the people. Dr. Vandana Shiva, I'm so honoured to have you here. My pleasure. So, um, well, I'll start here. Coincidentally, last week I interviewed Jo Fairley, the, the founder of Green and Black's Chocolate, and she mentioned you in our podcast episode saying that she saw you at a Soil Association event and, and you'd made a joke when um, someone asked if it was too late to save the planet and you said, no, the planet will be just fine without us. And she shared that and it was just coincidental because here you are this week. So I have so many questions and so many places I want to take this, but I always start by asking the same question, which is, what have you done so far today to support your wellness? Well, today I walked in the garden my mother planted. I have uh, meditated a bit, I've exercised a bit, eaten a meal with my family, and uh, had a very relaxing day, but also very... uh, very troubled by the fact that this is peak of spring. We've just celebrated the spring festival and there is no spring because this unpredictable weather events are becoming more and more predictable. Yeah. Mm. I personally, I've had a good day. Good. And I know it's, it's evening there where you are. So let's start there then. Why is the weather being affected by what we're doing? Well, I think there are, uh, two levels of uh, the impact. One is as a side effect. Um, I think it goes back to colonialism where forests were cleared and lands were cleared and biodiversity was destroyed for monoculture plantations, for extraction. And, And extractivism of the colonial age really set the model of what we call economy. It is not economy. Economy means living life, the art of living. This is money making. And uh, Aristotle had a very different word for it. He called it crematistics, the art of money making. And the two should not be confused. And then, of course, 200 years ago, coal, steam engine, then oil 100 years ago, that fossil fuel acceleration of colonialism then turned the graph upwards for every greenhouse gas that is polluting the atmosphere and leading to climate change. Um, And the three big ones are, of course, carbon dioxide that comes directly from the use of fossil fuels, nitrous oxide, about which there's total silence, which comes from synthetic fertilizers made from fossil fuels, and it's 300 times more damaging to the climate than carbon dioxide is. But nobody likes to talk about it because then the shift is so clear. Let the small farms be. Don't destroy them in the name of feeding the world while you're, all you're doing is feeding your greed. And then the third is methane, 
which has grown with industrialization of factory farms. It has grown with creating more waste overall. You know, everything was locally circulated, but when you dump 50% of the food that's grown into waste, that's methane. So those three other gases, and that comes as a, in a way, a side effect, you know, uh, of a colonial fossil fuel age. But there is a third part, and I don't think enough people pay their attention, pay attention to this, with this, the deliberate manipulation of the climate, with the pretense that you're solving the climate problem. It has many names. It is called geoengineering. It is called aerosol management. Uh, it's basically putting pollutants into the sky to send the sun back and block the sun. And it's called cloud whitening. Um, but there's big money being put into it. And, uh, and you know, when, when we get absolutely strange events, it's not just the unpredictability of climate change, but the arrogance and hubris of a few billionaires wanting to engineer the climate for their next uh, way of making money. Because, you know, once you start putting aerosols into the sky, you have to keep doing it all the time. Just like once you give up your renewable seed, you have to buy seed every year. Once you uh, give up good clothing, you know, I think this shawl of mine must be 30 years old. Yeah. Made beautifully, each little dot is, uh, is dyed by hand, you know. Um, 30 years it's been with me and no waste. And then you're getting throwaway clothing and you're getting mountains of clothing. So in a way, what they're treating the climate as a throwaway culture. And if you just go back in time, this was a dead planet. The earth created life on this planet. The earth managed the climate from 190 degrees, it brought the temperature down or 290 degrees down to 13 degrees, from 4,000, 5,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide through her living system, through a biosphere. She brought the carbon dioxide to 270 parts per million. And that's why James Lovelock has called her Gaia, you know, the living earth. And we've forgotten about it. Just 200,000 years ago, she invited our species and said, come, be part of the Earth family. I'll give you space. And 200,000 years, we lived peacefully. And 200 years of fossil fuels, 500 years of colonialism, that's what's messed it up. So I would say the pause today has to be, how did people live before messing up the climate? And shouldn't we be making them our teachers? And the second is, how did the Earth live without us? to manage her climate, because the arrogance that humans manage the earth is what I was talking about when I said the earth will be fine. She will evolve to another state. She'll have other species. After all, there were dinosaurs and they're not here. We could be the dinosaurs of our age that she says, bye-bye. You know, I gave you time. You didn't use your time well. You know, I'll carry on. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the evolutionary potential of the earth is huge. Our ecological niche is very narrow. And that's why the 200 years fossil fuel arrogance of industrialism and the 500 years of brutality of colonialism must end in order to address, start finding the true solutions to climate change. So much I want to unpack that. I, I'd like to go back. Um, so 
obviously you've adopted this moniker of the Gandhi of grain. And I'd like to go for you to take us back through your journey and how you came to be doing this activism and came to be doing what you're doing today. So that to give a bit of context for people listening. Sure. So I was born into a Gandhian family. My parents were very Gandhian. Yeah. So I grew up with that philosophy. But when I saw the first forest disappear in 1970s before leaving, leaving for Canada, uh, you know, that's when I realized I can't take things for granted, you know. It, like they say, the sun will rise tomorrow. We know that, you know. I, I grew up thinking the forest will be there. And then the forest wasn't there. So I started to look around and uh, looked for a movement I heard about called Chipko, which means to hug. And my activism was really born of my volunteering with the Chipko movement through the 70s, throughout that decade. I was doing my PhD in Canada, but I would come back every summer and every winter and volunteer for a month or two. It was my university of biodiversity, of ecology, of activism, of Ghanaian activism. So what were the women doing? They were saying, we will hug the trees. You'll have to kill us before you kill the trees. We will come between you and your axe and the tree, which gives us life. Um, having been groomed with that, we, of course, participated in many, many movements. Gandhi had a beautiful word for it. And uh, he didn't just call it civil disobedience. He called it satyagraha the force of truth, living your truth, living your truth for the earth, living your truth for life. And so, you know, when they said they wanted to own the seed, I said, no, you won't, we'll do a satyagraha. And it was a different time, you know, the Speaker of Parliament joined us and MPs joined us. These days they're all lobbyists, they're all living off the crumbs of the big billionaires. But that time we had sovereignty, in, you know, and they came and, and we declared a seed satyagraha. We will not obey. Uh, you know, what, what is Satyagraha? That when laws and rules and policies become brutal and start to destroy life, you have a duty to not obey because you have a duty to obey the higher laws of your conscience and your life. So the crude and pathetic and brute laws made by the greedy and the powerful um, are worthy of not obeying. And then, you know, they tried to shut down India's such a rich food culture. You know, every part has a different cooking oil. And then the GMO soya lobby said, oh, we could dump so much GMO soya there. And overnight, they banned our oils. 50 lakh, 5 million gold-pressed honeys were made illegal. And then the poor women from the slum said, we can't drink this or eat this soy oil. Our children won't eat. They go to bed crying. Bring back our mustard. I said, give me a week to study what happened because I don't jump into activism. I, I go into it with deep knowledge. Of what am I doing and what are the forces I'm up against? And um, so I, I studied the GMO soya lobby and what they were up to. And, um, and then I made a commitment to the women. I said, yeah, we'll do a satyagraha. And we, you know, in the heart of Delhi at Kanaat Place, we did a sarsaw satyagraha, the mustard satyagraha. And then I called the chief minister to receive the first bottle of the oil of disobedience against a law that was forcing us to drink GMO, cook with GMO soya oil. And uh, we had the president's wife participate in these things. 
um, lots and lots of uh, movements and satyagrahs against the patenting of life because we deeply believe life is not an invention of a Monsanto. Uh, and uh, in fact, my work on seeds and patenting, I guess is what's given me that label of Gandhi of Grey. But uh, I, I do feel it's an ontological error to say a Monsanto invents a seed. All they do is put a toxic gene through a gene gun. Now that is pollution. It is not creation. And this much of a mind I do have to know the difference between pollution and creation. So let's go there then with Monsanto. Let's talk a bit about pesticides. Um, I think what I find when I'm talking to people about health and the importance of organic food is it almost sometimes comes across that, well, it's a bit prissy to eat organic food. It's just, you know, only rich people can. And yet everything we're putting into our bodies that is grown using chemicals, GMO foods is essentially harming us. So can you take us deeper there and talk about the harm that GMO foods are doing, that pesticides are doing, and what happens to them at a genetic level and what happens to us as a result of it? And who's controlling all of that? Well, let me take a step back on this myth that organic is for the rich. Organic is to produce food in nature's ways with no external inputs. In true cost, it is the cheapest food. It is the cheapest way you should produce food. If everyone was doing it individually, though, right? With, in their own gardens, I'm guessing. No, no, even if the whole system was doing it, it would be cheaper. It would be cheaper. How does food produced with lots of chemicals, which have to be bought at very high levels, non-renewable seed, GMO seed, bought at very high cost with royalty payments attached to it, how does that high cost food production end up producing cheap food? That's a simple question people should ask. Yeah, Here's a high cost system, but the food that comes out is cheap. Here's a low cost system with no external inputs. And, and why is that more costly? Well, the reason organic looks more costly is because the chemical has been hugely subsidized. Europe alone, the cap subsidy for bad food and industrial agriculture is half of the tax money the Europeans pay. Half of their tax money is going to cheat on the price of food and then poison them. Where did these poisons come from? You know, my own deep training really is in quantum theory and physics. The reason I started to look at agriculture was because in my country, in the state of Punjab, where I had studied and done my MSc honors in particle physics in the 70s, um, early 70s, that's when, uh, you know, the Green Revolution, I had no, no idea what it was or what it was being done, what was being done, but it's the name of chemical farming imposed on India called the Green Revolution. Uh, it's not green, it's not revolutionary. And within a decade, it had destroyed the most prosperous part of India, Punjab, the land of five rivers, and farmers were in an uprising. And in 1984, they were going to blockade the green supply. And that's when the army was sent to the Golden Temple. And uh, I decided then to do a study for the United Nations University 
I was working for them on conflicts over resources. I said, here's a conflict, and I do feel resources are at play. I do feel the rivers and waters and land I play, but something deeper is going on and I'd like to understand. And they gave me the permission and I did a study called The Violence of the Green Revolution for the UNU. That book taught me everything I know about agriculture. It taught me that the chemicals really have their ancestors in Hitler's Germany. The corporations call IG Farben and the American partners, Standard Oil, Rockefeller, Monsanto. Monsanto and Bayer were one before they become one again. Mobe was a company during Hitler's time. They basically began making chemicals originally to make artificial dyes. Till then they used to have to, you know, import the blue from India. Indigo, one sack of indigo, one sack of gold. And then uh, the Germans thought, let's make chemical dyes. Uh, and it was made from fossil fuels, coal tar. And then they were given the job by Hitler to make gases to gas people to death in concentration camps. And the ancestors I can be of pesticides comes from there. Fertilizers come from the same factories that made explosives. That's why you have so many fertilizer bombs in the world. That's why a warehouse in Beirut exploded because the technology is the same technology, the Haber-Bosch process. Um, so that's where they come from. And they have worked a brilliant system of taking all our public money and turning it into their subsidy. And that subsidy does two things. First of all, it turns into a conditionality. You know, if you use this, you can survive as a farmer. And if you don't, you're punished. Um, but that subsidy then creates the lie that chemical food is cheap. And you allow monopolies to grow at the buying end, you know. You allow a Walmart, you allow an Amazon. They'll drive down any price. You know, how is it that they constantly advertise at 10%, 10% price? A true price cannot be reduced by 10%, 1%, 2%, 10% off the price. And our research has shown that as the system gets more and more consolidated and industrialization, which is chemical farming, joins hands with globalization, which is corporate rule, what you get is a handful of players selling chemicals and seeds on the one hand and buying on the other. Now, when you have just one company buying all the tomatoes of a region, they'll drive the prices rock bottom. When you have a few companies buying the coffee, the prices will not cover the wages of the workers. 5% of what a consumer pays goes to the producers and the farmers in this industrialized, globalized system. And because they've cheated so badly, they can cheat further with price fixing. And, and therefore, the only system in which you pay the true price is when you're, you're eating local and organic. Then whatever you're spending money on goes straight to the farmer. Either you grow your food, nothing more truthful than that because you're living your truth as an earth being, or you become part of a food community and you support farmers. This is what is called community-supported agriculture, farmers markets. There's so much beautiful innovation happening there. And actually, it is growing much faster. You know, industrial agriculture, unless it's forced, where there's a choice, it's in decline. Where there's a choice, organic is growing. So eat organic, it's not a luxury. And then let me add two more figures for you. 
So because we save seeds and we do intensification of biodiversity, not of chemicals, our research has shown we can feed two times India. If we do biodiversity conservation, we can feed two times the world and solve the climate problem at the same time. Because the biosphere is where the climate is regulated, just like our metabolism is where the health is regulated. You know, our metabolic systems depend on the food we eat and the metabolic system of the earth depends on the food she eats. And when the food is renewable through the energies of recycling, of the carbon cycle, of the nitrogen cycle, that's when our metabolism works brilliantly. But what we then realized, the same question that you started with about the high cost of organic. So we decided to do a true cost accounting for chemical agriculture in India. And our agriculture minister wrote the forward because he was absolutely convinced. The externalities for farmers and for the environment is $1.3 trillion a year. But add to it the costs of chemicals to help. That's another 1.5 trillion. So the costs of being borne by farmers, by the earth, and by consumers of a chemical agriculture is as big as our GDP, except that you know, it's not being counted as a cost. Yeah? It's the money made by a hospital for cancer treatment is counted as a growth. Ah, okay. So so link that for me here because so you mentioned that Monsanto. And now it's Monsanto owned by Bayer, or they were. Bayer. Oh, this is an interesting question. Right, because Bayer are pharmaceutical Yeah, it's so Bayer acquired Monsanto, but it's a part of Monsanto because Monsanto was owned by a bigger company called Pharmacia. Pharmacia is now owned by Pfizer, the famous Pfizer. So they all one one cancerous growth on the planet. Monsanto was getting into big trouble. You know, there were marches against Monsanto and we did a public tribunal in The Hague to try them on for the crimes against the earth, crimes against farmers, crimes against children, crimes against scientists, crimes against democracy. Uh, and we had witnesses of all these fears. In fact, it was as people would call me from different parts of the world and I would travel to Argentina, I would travel to Canada. And then I realized at a certain point, everyone was resisting Monsanto in their countries, but they were a global force of destruction. So we had to bring all the victims together and show that the costs and the harm was very, very high. So because Monsanto started and the name became so bad, they realized they had to dissolve the name. And in a way, the acquisition was to make Monsanto the name disappear, not its toxics, not its GMOs, not its glyphosate, not its roundup, not the cancers, buyers having to deal with the cancer cases. Um, So I wrote around that time a book called Oneness Versus the 1%. And I tried to understand who owns how much or what. And then I realized, well, the corporations really are not owned by shareholders who are small little people putting their $100,000 or $5,000. These are really now owned by the asset management companies, which hold the money of the big billionaires, the Black Rocks and the Vanguards. And the top 70% of the shares are owned by Black Rock in Mumbai and Vanguard. In, you know, so across, it's the same big money of the world. 
And why would they then push the chemicals? Because they make money. If you are doing organic farming and you're making your compost in your back garden, where does BlackRock make its money? So they have to create systems that are harmful to health. They have to create systems of extraction. And the one thing that people, you know, just like I did my work at that time in the Green Revolution study to find out, oh my God, the roots of these companies is Hitler's Germany. In a way, Rachel Carson had warned us on that. She had said when she wrote Rassal and Spring, you know, companies who had got used to killing people are now using them as pesticides, killing birds and insects. But Albert Howard, the, you know, who was in a way the resurrector of organic farming after coming to India, and he wrote his book, Agricultural Testament, got a whole para there. Companies that had got used to selling chemicals during war could not get out of the habit and turn them into agrochemicals. But they changed science with it. They changed policies with it. And right now, the, the big pharma, big ag, big poison are the same companies. So glyphosate gives you cancer, Roundup gives you cancer. And then the buyers who are selling the Roundup because they are now Monsanto, have the cancer drug budget. So for them, sickness is a very profitable machine. Healthy people do not serve them. Mm-hmm. Healthy people are good for the healthy people. A healthy planet is good for the healthy planet. But a sick planet and sick people are is where profits and growth happens for the corporations. And that's why the, the basic... Uh, logic, the basic processes are totally inconsistent with each other. Life requires regeneration, recycling, healing. Profits require sickness, extraction, dumping, throw away, and poison is so profitable. And more of the same, they're resistant to the change that is needed for an evolutionary process, I'm guessing, because that's why they say resistant. One of the things I realized when I started to work on following WTO and globalization and the patenting and intellectual property and agriculture treaty and sanitary and phytosanitary measures, every all the rubbish that goes into calling it free trade, uh, I realized that just like colonialism, current globalization, through violence, forbids the good thing and forces the harmful thing. Give you a very simple example. So there's this treaty called the Sanitary and Phytosanitary Agreement in the World Trade Organization. This is the treaty that allowed them to shut down our cold press, virgin cold press ailments, because they're unsafe, but the solvent extraction plants using neurotoxins are very safe for you. I remember women, old women used to bake cakes for hospitals in England. And the sanitary and phytosanitary rules forbade them, say that home-baked bakeries are dangerous. Industrial food that makes you sicker is safe. So the very idea of what's clean, what's safe has been redefined Mm. so that you can totally erase and push to extinction the healthy options. 
I mean, it's, it is because I've had to travel the world before the COVID time. I remember I was called by Hawaii for their launch of a GMO-free ca Hawaii campaign. And, uh, you know, I the first time around, I said, grow your gardens, you know. For me, it's such a revolutionary idea. Grow your food, grow your garden. Next time I went, I couldn't believe it. There was a new ruling that required children to go into their compost pits and their gardens with moon dresses, the kind of, you know, the, the that everyone's having to wear now with the COVID. Because we made this very ill-defined idea that every insect is dangerous for us. Every every living organism is dangerous. But life is living organisms. Life is microbes. We are virums. We are biomes. We are not human. We are we are marginally human. We are primarily other beings. Mm -hmm. And therefore, to create this fear of other beings and say exterminate, use the poison, use the herbicide, use the fungicide, called the seeds with neonicotides, this has you know, it's out of the fear that was created by distorting our understanding of the world that you have this treadmill, chemical treadmill book, you know. And of course, the profits don't stop because as in my many, many years now, you know, farmer used to use one bag of urea. Now they're using 20 bags of urea. They used to spray once a pesticide. Now they spray 40 times in a season. So it's you have to keep using more and more. And I call it the ecological narcotic. I call it a drug addiction at an ecosystem level. I'm so excited to be working with Block Blue Light again. You guys know I talk about their blue light blocking glasses a lot, but I actually have new reason to talk to you about them now. So a lot of you know we're renovating our new house at the moment and we have decided to go ahead and kit out our entire house with anti-blue light bulbs because of how damaging modern lighting is to our health and our sleep. We wanted to change everything modern houses usually have that we never question, but that are actually really detrimental to health. So in this case, things like not having dimmers because they release such high EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, or not having LED or fluorescent lighting anywhere, which seems crazy to everyone because that's just what we're used to. We wanted lights without damaging blue light, but in rooms like the kitchen, I really wanted to make sure I still had enough light, especially living in the UK where it gets dark at 4pm in the winter. And this was a little bit of a concern of mine because I still really want the house to be fully functional for modern living. But the Block Blue Light team created the world's first biologically friendly day to night full spectrum light bulb. And that's a lighting technology that really closely replicates the same visual color spectrum as visible natural light from the sun. And this sort of exposure to full spectrum light will increase energy throughout the day and uplifts our mood and increases overall well-being. And of course, these lights are super low EMF. And low EMF is something I've become hyper aware of in recent years and something we're really trying to focus on with this house. So for rooms where we don't need lights that are as bright, we've opted for their amber light and taken their advice on things like having floor and table lamps. So after dusk, we'd only have lights at eye height because our ancestors would have only had firelight after dusk, right? And no overhead lighting. And we know that when we mimic our natural states as much as possible, our health thrives. And we wanted to make sure we did this with our new home in every way we could. 
So they also created the first ever blue light free reading lamp that attaches to your book and it has three brightness settings, but no blue light whatsoever. So it won't damage my sleep in any way, which is life changing for me because I read in bed every night. Now, this is the third season reconditioned have teamed up with Block Blue Light because we all know that healthy eating is essential and all of that great stuff, but not enough people know of how important reducing our exposure to EMFs is. And I really want to continue sharing this message. Sleep optimization is key to health and these products really maximize that. So you can go ahead and use the code LV20 at checkout on blockbluelight.co.uk for 20% discount across the entire range. Thank you so much to Block Blue Light. And now an uninterrupted episode. I mean, yeah, there's just so much I want to ask you from that. And I don't know where to start. Let I want to talk a bit about um, the risk of being chucked off Spotify now that we are having this, you know, misinformation policy. Um, Bill Gates, because, you know, we hear all these things, you know, uh, about him and his, his his ideas and his big ideas to, to, to you know, with, with kind of controlling populations and GMO food. I'd like to know what is Bill Gates's role in food? And does he really have a monopoly of our food and generally what is controlling us right now. Because it's, I like to try and think of things in a way of not kind of dehumanizing people based on, again, misinformation. How do we know what's misinformation? I'd love to hear that from you because what really is Bill Gates's role in GMO yeah. food? So <clears throat> I think it's important to to go to when he started to enter the food system, which is very recent. I wrote Oneness versus 1% because of Bio buying Monsanto and Bill Gates running the UN system. Yeah. Mm. I watched him in Paris, literally running the climate summit. Mm. And I said, the UN used to be country leaders since when the billionaires start instructing heads of state. Mm. And the same thing was repeated at the COP26, where the billionaires really were dictating the terms. <clears throat> so Bill Gates was primarily, of course, in computers and Microsoft. And, and my book, Oneness Versus 1%, I went back to, you know, he didn't write the basic program. It was written by two college professors. He didn't write um, the office program. It's also written by someone else. So he basically... You know, he, he took what was there, either in the public domain or at very low cost. He got into climate in 2015. And then he started to hustle his way into agriculture. I have a book called Saw Not All, where I've shown how 45 to 50% of the greenhouse gases come from a chemical, industrial, globalized agriculture system. It's about 12, 14% in the production end, um, another 20% by destroying the Amazon and the rainforest of Indonesia for palm oil and GMO soya, another 20% for processing and destroying good food and turning it into ultra processed food and packaging it in aluminium and in plastic and moving it thousands of miles. Um, and this is all UNFCC data, and then another 4% of waste. Um, so the connection between climate and food is there. 
but it's a connection between an industrial agriculture. So Bill Gates worked out how he can enter a hyper-industrialization of food and move that as a climate solution. So we have a book coming out, I think on the 11th it will be released. You can go to the website or I can send you um, the links um, to the book release. It's on philanthrocapitalism and the erosion of democracy. And this book is authored, co-authored would be by every movement that is addressing different parts of the Bill Gates financing from the fake food system. You know, Silicon Valley is pouring money into fake food. That's where they see they can have the patents. Just like Monsanto thought they could get patents and seed, the billionaires from the tech lobby are wanting patents and food. Like when you impossible say fake food, do you mean like these fake burgers and stuff like that? Is that what you're referring yeah. to? Yeah, I mean food that didn't come from the soil mm. and didn't grow with loving hands and you can't recognize this is a cabbage and this is a carrot. It's anonymous. Its sources are anonymous. And I'll give you a little bit of that. So the food issue, of course, health, total control, total control. Geoengineering, I talked about the weather modif modification by choice and intent. There's a whole chapter on geoengineering. But I'm writing my new book, and a large part of it comes from this book. Of <laughs> Bill Gates. World Climate Disaster by Bill Gates. So it's not about issues of, you know, this is Mr. Bill Gates' point of view. He's put it down in black and white. There's a publisher who has committed themselves to pushing his views. Um, I stand with animals, yeah? And I have avoided tractors on our farm because they are fossil fuel and tractors are heavy machinery that destroy the soil. He says these must disappear. What does he say must grow? Synthetic fertilizers, which are a big part of the climate problem, a very big part of the dead oceans. The only reason oceans are dying is because of runoff of chemical fertilizer. You pour urea into soil, you will just see the mycorrhizal fungi shrivel and die. The earthworms disappear. It's a killer of the soil, of the water, of the atmosphere. And here you have its promotion. I am happier than I look. I'm happier than I look in front of a fertilizer plant. It's the gates in 2021 for you to celebrate a war chemical as the future of humanity, as a solution to climate change. Yeah, something is wrong. And you know, for, I also, you know, I'm I'm sitting in what became the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Ecology. When I wanted to give up my job, my mother was very generous. She said, "Don't even hesitate." You know, because I said, I don't know where the funds will come on. Where will I pay rent? What will I do? She said, take the cow shed. So I'm sitting what was my mother's cow shed. I've grown up with cows. Yeah. And our cows don't stink. The methane comes from the bad feed you give your cows mm -hmm. and concentration in concentrated animal farm operations. He, he says the reason there's methane is because the cows have forced them. Now, I feel sad that someone with so much money has the power to totally distort science. Yeah? Mm. And that 
is harmful for the future of humanity. It's harmful for the future of the planet. And, and given the kind of domination of the digital control, the social media, this kind of distortion just spreads. Yeah. So I keep plodding along with my love for the seed and I care for the seed and my love for the cows and I take care of the cows and, uh, and, uh, and don't fall for, you know, it's interestingly, the total falsehood from the billionaires are never called misinformation. They're absolute lies, you know. They don't qualify for misinformation. It's misinformation to say the cow is the problem. Mm. It's a misinformation to say urea and fertilizer is a solution. Yeah, this whole misinformation thing has has become such a problem. I've just, you know, we're go, go, going through this thing with Brene Brown now removing her podcast from Spotify because Joe Rogan's episode with Dr. Robert Malone and um, Neil Diamond, who apparently you've just mentioned BlackRock. Apparently, Neil Diamond's music is owned by BlackRock. So, and he's removed his his music from Spotify because Spotify didn't um, censor podcasts that speak about the COVID vaccine, the COVID injection, let's call it. So we've got this issue now with misinformation everywhere. And what constitutes misinformation and who decides what's misinformation? So Brene Brown, with all her power within Spotify, because they want her business because she's getting millions of downloads, have now listened to her. And what she's come out with this thing and said, you know, this wasn't about cancelling. This isn't about censorship. I just wanted um, Spotify to have a misinformation policy and I've commented and I've said but what you've done now by by ensuring that Spotify have a misinformation policy is essentially you're causing censorship because people like me who are sharing information that isn't necessarily accepted by the mainstream you know media the mainstream paradigm are we're going to be censored now to a degree so you you've harmed that yeah but Lauren I think it is so wrong for a platform to be the decider. That's exactly my point. Yeah. You know, uh, but, but more than that. More important, you know, and what do these guys, you know, they, they, they built empires by just run, run, creating a, a platform. That's all they did. Right. Yeah. Do right. they know the subject matter? No, they don't. Right. So, you know, that's why I'm, I'm, I so love my country because we know truth is about pluralism. Mm. You know, that we know truth is about the right action. Yeah. But the right action on the basis of your relationship with your world. Mm. Yeah. But there is no, you know, uh, and quantum theory, you know, what is the truth? Are, are they going to say if I say that the same thing can be a particle and a wave and it's disinformation in a mechanistic paradigm? Are you going to use Baconian Cartesian reductionism to decide what is science and what is not science? Mm. So, uh, you know, I mean, they tried to do this with Ayurveda, the oldest health system of the world. Mm -hmm. They tried to Facebook and, you know, pulled down their videos of evidence that with Ayurvedic treatment, people were being healed. Mm -hmm. Because it's and, using you know, the earth. Yeah, it's so so I think you, there's two things wrong with this handing over power to people who have no knowledge, but also imagining that there's one truth. You know, uh, one of my favorite physicists, Feyerabend. I don't know if you ever heard of Paul Feyerabend. 
No. And he wrote a brilliant book called A Guest Method because they used to at that time talk about, you know, the one truth. Science. He said, there's no one truth in science. You know, a mechanical physics is very different from a quantum theory. Mm. And evolutionary biology is very different from genetic reductionism. You cannot say this is the one. Yeah, they're different ways. And then, of course, in a, in a democratic debate in science, the truth wins out through process. And that is what should be happening. Let 5,000 views about what's going on in the world flourish. Let 5,000 views flourish. And two years from now, we will then know what is true and not because our bodies will be speaking. The medical data will be speaking. Yeah. So um, in a way, you know, when you think of it, uh, you know, colonialism was preceded by something called the witch hunts and inquisition. And what was inquisition? Whatever is not allowed by centralized authority is heresy. Mm. That's where we are reaching again. We're coming back to witch hunt days. And it, it is not good for the world because pluralism is my society and my culture is thinking, Bahuda, let there be many views and let them all flourish. That's why India is so deep in nonviolence. We are not either or culture. Yeah. Mm. Just like quantum theory isn't an either or science. There's always, there is nothing like an excluded middle. You know, there's an occupied middle. Mm. And, and I think we are, you know, uh, we are coming, going back to the 14, whatever, Papal Bull. I think 1484, Papal Bull of Pope Innocenti. Yeah. And, and except that the popes are now these platform runners, you know, the Facebooks and the Zuckerbergs. And the, I mean, Zuckerberg was caught in a total violation with his so-called fact-checking by the British Medical Journal, you know, that they made a mess on exactly this thing and it's all out in the public. British Medical Journal, one of the best, you know, they were hounded and then Facebook, on, on fact-checking by Facebook, since then, did Zuckerberg become a medical expert? Yeah. So it's very messy. Our situation is very messy. Mm. Our health is in a mess. The planet's in a bit of a mess too. But I think open-mindedness is our only possibility of getting through this mess. Yeah, I, I love that thought as well, because that we are in that situation of we're kind of just being told exactly what to think. Like you said about the witch hunts, it does feel like that when you're posting content on social media that isn't accepted by, you know, the mainstream. It, I'm getting constantly, this, this was proven to be uh, a misinformation by a fact checker, by an independent fact checker. And I'm like, <laughs> who's this fact checker? You know, like you say... <laughs> Let that be all the views. Let yes. that be the 5,000 views. Because how will we learn? How, how will we grow if everything we are um, telling our children is being told to us and we're just taking that as gospel? And, you know, I'm really trying hard to teach my children about thinking for themselves, which is so difficult in a world where everyone is trying to teach them to conform. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I love that you've, you've said that about kind of just using our own minds. And I think it comes back to this, this, you know, body autonomy, this true sovereignty, feeling into the intuition, 
what is right? You know, it doesn't matter what a fact checker is telling me. What do I feel in my intuition is right here? Is it, does it feel right in my intuition to eat a vegetable that has been grown using glyphosate, which has been proven to be carcinogenic? Or does it feel right to get that from a local farmer or to grow it myself? It can't, all the propaganda in the world can't come back to somehow convince us that it's healthier to eat that GMO food. What's your, so I know that Monsanto were, had to pay out, was it $289 million on that lawsuit against the man who, who um, claimed that, yeah. that glyphosate That's one. They've had to pay for more. Right. They've lost all cases. So but, my, no, let me just take a step back because a lot of people feel that all the stuff of uh, fact-checking is new, the language is new. You know, Monsanto came into my country without going through the proper statutory obligations of approval. And that's why I say they came illegally. And I sued them. And I was threatened by them. And I continued my work, saving seeds, doing ecological farming, doing organic farming, but also monitoring the GMOs, monitoring the GATT, the WTO, and participating in writing the international treaty called the Convention on Biological Diversity, out of which grew a protocol on biosafety. Biosafety is the language for safety in the domain of genetic engineering. Uh, at those negotiations, I used to watch how they tried to subvert and you know, we worked hard with governments and we got that treaty through. I kept monitoring what was happening with the GMO, BT cotton, which kept come to India. I was monitoring its failure and I'd write articles. Journal newspaper editors were told they couldn't mm. or have an article by me. TV shows that used to get me regularly were told we shut your channel down. But more importantly than that, you know, it became very clear that there was a sudden burst of suicide to farmers in India, 400,000, of which 85%. This is government statistics. Government gives us the details of which district, how many. We know which district has BT cotton. You map the two, the suicide data and the cotton data, 85% suicides are in the cotton belt, of which 95% is owned, controlled by Monsanto. So I started to write about suicide, seeds of suicide, every year a report, public hearings. Then they, yeah, they went after me for a decade. I mean, it's not that they've kept quiet. They continue even now. But for a decade, they used every journal, every magazine, every place to attack. And how do they attack? First, they tried to have my, you know, Wikipedia made my MSc disappear. You know, I, I had never studied physics. You know, and I am a liar. And I'm anti-science. And this whole thing, of disinformation every day, every day bombarded, 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 bombarded. It's just that now there's so many more people awake to the GMO question and the glyphosate question. What I went through, Dr. Arpat Putsai went through, and he was silenced, his lab was shut. We just lost him the other day. Eric Serolini, the person who did the original cancer research and the, you know, of the glyphosate, the famous scientist of, of, of uh, France, they did the same to him. So what's happening today is an acceleration of those of us who've been working on chemicals, 
It happened to Rachel Carson. You know, let's not forget. They accused her of disinformation. The inspiration of our age to protect ourselves from harmful chemicals. Yeah. So, you know, they grew out of war. They grew out of expertise in killing. So they know how to manipulate everything. They know how to manipulate governments to buy Agent Orange and spray it on the Vietnamese and cause all the damages that the children there are still facing. That's the expertise, lying and killing, lying and killing, lying and killing. And they get away with it because all the organizations are linked, presumably, because my question is, how has have there been four cases where they've had to pay out hundreds of millions of dollars in damage, and yet they're still allowed to use this product on the food? Well, uh, because I have watched, you know, uh, for example, there was going to be a vote on glyphosate. And it would have been phased out. And they, they literally corrupted the minister in Germany. Um, they threatened the minister in uh, France, you know, um, um, Hulot, Nicola Hulot, dear friend, we've written a book together. And uh, and he'd given him says, if I can't get the ban on glyphosate through, I will not continue in this ministry. And he left after a year. But they, you know, they're used to mafia tactics. I mean, just imagine, take your mind back. You say, any company that knows how to push a deadly chemical for war, you know, they know every technique of how to get government decisions through. And in the last you know, I was talking about the biosafety protocol. We had sovereign governments. We were able to regulate these companies. You wanted to know where is Gates in agriculture now. Gates entry into agriculture right now is in deregulating GMOs. The first generation of GMOs have totally failed. There were only two applications, Roundup Ready crops and Bt toxin crops. Both were toxic, both have failed. One was supposed to control pests, it created super pests. The other was supposed to control weeds, it created super weeds. So Bill Gates started to fund scientists who were working on what's called gene editing, CRISPR, yeah? And he financed everyone. As I've written in my book, Oneness Versus 1%, he even opened a company, Editas, which takes patents, collects all the patents on this. In England, there's an attempt to deregulate the new GMOs, which are gene edited crops, which have huge impacts. There is now research showing there's huge disruption of the DNA. All you're doing is shifting a gene, but the a living system is totally self-organized. And one abuse, one place can lead to all kinds of unpredictable damages in other places. One edit leads to 1,500 unpredictable shifts in the genome. So, Everywhere in the world, if there's attempt to deregulate biosafety, it's Bill Gates. And he's really pushing this generation, the second generation of GMOs, the gene edited crops. I heard um, Dr. Zach Bush talk about, he, he, he thinks that now we're at this kind of precipice where actually the system is going to implode on itself. Do you believe that? Well, because I'm, trained in uncertainty, I, I don't believe in anything with certainty. I say, mm -hmm. even if there's a 1% chance that 
the right forces will align. Yeah? Mm -hmm. and, and these destructive forces will have to face accountability. I throw my weight behind that 1% chance. Yeah, I'd like to do that as well. You mentioned the cloud whitening and, and pushing the sun back and things like that, which we're hearing about chemtrail trails, all to do with Bill Gates. What is that about? Is that actually happening? Is that to do with Bill Gates? What are they trying to achieve yeah. there? Well, they basically, you know, it's a very narrow mechanistic idea that, the, you know, uh, climate change is leading to global warming and you block the sun, you'll have cooling. A stupid idea because the climate is a very complex system and uh, and blocking the sun means you're blocking photosynthesis you're blo blocking life on earth he actually had, had funded harvard for a project in sweden and it was the indigenous people the sami who basically rose in revolt and said you will not do this in our land but they, you know the point is unless governments monitor there is no way anyone will know because now we've got so used to climate change everyone thinks that abnormal rain or that abnormal clouding is part of climate change no i do think we need to start thinking of seriously implementing a treaty that was ratified in 1978 it's called the environmental modification treaty it's illegal to modify the climate it's illegal to modify the environment and that's why two places where Gates had really declared war against the planet. One is weather modification through aerosol, aerosol spray, blocking the sun and whitening of clouds. And the second is gene drives, literally through intention, pushing species to extinction. Yeah, you have an extinction rebellion. There should be, you know, and, and, and both of these are linked to defense research. Yeah. So they are about weaponizing the climate and weaponizing biodiversity. So we are, you know, the mindset is a very damaged mindset, a very damaged mindset that really sees no, no limit to arrogance and no limit to power and no limit to greed. And that is, that's actually a, a, a mental sickness, if you were to ask me, you know, a normal human being would say, you know, where do I draw a line? How do I not harm? especially when you're talking so much about climate and the environment at least learn a little bit from this beautiful earth learn something from her to live according to her laws but you know i yes we are in a very serious crisis i do not underestimate the destructive power and the responsibility of the billionaires but like i said every day i do my little bit to do the right thing mm. and every day i just you know Put my energies for new alliances to emerge, you know. Mm. And I don't believe the alliances are purely human alliances. I think we have so much in the world to support us. Oh, I agree. And yeah, it's just, it's kind of just, it's a shame because what we're seeing is that the way people are being kind of goaded into thinking and when you say you know the earth supports us the work the earth has given us everything we need and yet you talk about ayurveda or homeopathy and that gets spread as misinformation and you can't possibly support your body with that you need a vaccine you need a chemical you need a drug and and that's really difficult and so i like doing podcasts like this where we're talking 
in a way that gets the cogs turning in people's brains, gets them thinking, oh, okay, here's the background to that. Now I've got the background and it's not just, you know, because in England, every time you post something, you get the NHS um, pop-up that says, you know, NHS guidelines about COVID and about, you know, this and that. And that's what people are kind of focusing on, right? These little pop-ups, as opposed to understanding the background of this information. Where are these chemicals from? What's the the link back to, to Hitler and the wars? And this information is so integral to people's understanding of be, being able to take back that sovereignty when it comes to their health. Um, and that idea of just coming back closer to nature, how can that be misinformation, you know? So we all need to come back to that. So my question, my next question for you, leading on from that, we've got two questions. You wrote obviously oneness versus the 1%. So the first question is, what does oneness mean to you in that respect? Yeah, oneness for me means everything is interconnected. We cannot be divided, we cannot be separated. That comes both from my training in quantum theory of non-separability, non-locality in quantum theory, but also all my work and research and action in ecology. But how I live with the soil is what decides the nutrition in my food. And then we measure it. The beauty of it is the measurements are proving care for the soil is the way to grow nutrition. Mm. Yeah. Um, so this is non-separability, but also non-separability in the sense of we are one humanity. And in India, we have a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful concept of Masudeva Kutumkam, one earth family. One earth family with the trees and the worms, all our relatives, exactly how indigenous people think about it. And I've dedicated my life to articulating both in with our communities in their indigenous terms, but internationally, you know, I talk about it as Earth democracy, you know, the democracy of all life and its beautiful interconnectedness. But interconnectedness also means you, you have to understand that you should not do harm. Interconnectedness means that you have to know where the limits are, you know, that you are not an absolute and you're not an atom. And I think for those who feel lonely, for those who feel marginalized, that's where you get power. When you know you're not alone, you are in an interconnected world. That's a very empowering idea. We're seeing that now. You know, I know that I truly believe that these last two years, although there has been so much harm caused in whatever, for whatever reason, wherever this did originate from or whatever the reasons for it, I have seen so much interconnectedness between human beings that have cut so much divisiveness as well, of course, because it is, again, pitting against each other in this kind of, you know, binary way of thinking. But I, I, I also am seeing so many people, and maybe it's just the people I'm exposing myself to, but this idea of unicity, of coming together as one, of, you know, creating community. And, and my community and I have spoken about the idea of maybe this is pushing us so far out of our comfort zones, because if they don't let us live how we want to live and they're forcing us to do these things, Maybe we have to go back and live how our ancestors lived. Maybe we have to create our own community and grow everything and raise our children together. Maybe it's pushing us to that. Who knows? But even the idea is bringing me closer to the idea of this oneness, of this unicity. Mm. And yeah. for that, I think that's it's had a positive benefit. Mm. Um, okay, so just my last question um, before we, we wrap up and just go into rapid fire is for people listening, what can we all do at an individual household level um, 
when it comes to food and food sovereignty. Um, failing being able to have a garden, let's just say people are living in apartments or with very small yards or whatever it might be. What should we be buying? What should we not be buying? What should we absolutely not be eating? And what can we just all do at an individual household level? Yeah. So if you don't have a space for a garden or a pot in your windowsill, form a group, form a group of healing communities. And then make the effort. It will not come from a supermarket shelf. You'll have to make the effort to create a food community. Link to growers and link to those who are actually growing food. The second is because there's an explosion of poverty and unemployment. And I know everywhere food kitchens and, and food, um, you know, yeah, um, feeding bad. the hungry. But I think it is also time for those, the pe because people donate so that those kitchens can run for those who donate to start donating to get healthy food to the vulnerable. We're not because allowed. We, this is the thing. I've tried to donate healthy, fresh food, and you're not allowed to give fresh food to food banks because it's got an expiration date. You've got to give packet food. It's, it's awful. Well, that's exactly the sanitary and phytosanitary measures of, right. of food fascism that I talked about. That's where it is. The healthy is unsafe. The dangerous with chemicals in a horrible tin is safe. And this... You know, we have a beautiful grassroots movement in India. We call it so us. You know, a self-reliant, self-emerging health. And from the grassroots, you know, the women are saying, no, no, we know what's healthy for us and you will not dictate. You will not dictate. That's it. You will not dictate. Sovereignty. Sovereignty yep. for each individual being. So I do a quick rapid fire round called All About You. And there's five questions. And the first one is always the same. So it's just fill in the blank. Wellness is? Being whole. Wonderful. A book you hope everyone will read? Well, I hope Oneness versus 1% will be read by everyone to understand the world. I better. hope so too. <laughs> I was hoping you'd say that. <laughs> if you could raid the brain of one person and retain all their information, who would it be? The yeah. Earth. Oh, I love that answer. Okay, and lastly, when you're not the Gandhi of grain and you're just Vandana at home, what do you do and what do you like and what does that look like? I am just Vandana even when I do the actions that call me the Gandhi of grain. And there is no separation between my life as an activist and my life as an ordinary Vandana. You know, it's seamless, it's interconnected. Beautiful answer. Dr. Mandana Shiva, thank you so much. I've gained so thank much from this. I've learned so much. I hope my audience, I know my audience will have learned so much. We'll link everything to your books and everything else in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you. I'm so honored to have you here. Thank you, Lauren. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And thank you also for taking responsibility for your well-being by listening to podcasts like this. It's something I really appreciate. And before you go, I just wanted to remind you to check out the Recondition Your Life Academy at laurenvacneencoaching.com. It's a 12-week course that I run three times a year for small tribes of like-minded women. If you love anything you're hearing here on the podcast, this course will serve you so deeply. 
Everything from inner child healing, divine feminine healing and health optimization to how to find your purpose and how to find or cultivate conscious relationships and so much more. Check out all the testimonials on the website from some very happy previous Academy members. The growth and healing available in this course really is unique. Just head over to the website and make sure to get your name on the waiting list for when we launch the next semester. Sending so much love your way.